Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. I'm Lydia Brown, and you're about to listen to a rebroadcast of Where We Live. Today's episode was originally recorded on August 22, 2019. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. He was a versatile composer, his works greatly respected during and after his death. But did you know Charles Ives is a Connecticut native? Today we learn more about him. His birthplace, now part of the Danbury Museum and Historical Society. The executive director of the museum will join us coming up to talk about the Ives family and their contributions to the Hat City. We'll also talk to Robert Carl, a composer who teaches at the University of Hartford's Hart School, about Ives' influence on his music, including an opera project. First, I want to welcome to our show Neely Bruce, the John Spencer Camp Professor of Music at Wesleyan University in Middletown, also composer, conductor, pianist, scholar of American music. Uh, so nice to meet you today, Neely. Same here, Lucy. I've admired your show for years. Well, thank you. So underneath us, we heard Ives' uh, The Unanswered Question. When yes. you hear that, what comes to mind? I saw that you were you were starting to almost <laughs> conduct in a way. <laughs> well, I have so many memories of this piece, and I did actually conduct uh, the woodwind part. This is a spatial piece. Um, there's a, a group of strings that you heard at the beginning, and then there's a, a solo trumpet, which is about to come in <laughs> before when we started talking. And then there is a, a fourth group, a third group, excuse me, which consists of either of four flutes or two flutes, one oboe and one clarinet. And that requires a separate conductor because they play in the tempo of the strings, but then they play faster than the strings, and then they play even faster uh, than the strings. So with the different tempos, you need a second conductor. And I've been in that role several times uh, in the Netherlands, never in the United States. We're going to be talking more about how uh, Charles Ives composed, again, uh, uh, very many different styles. Uh, But I'm curious, uh, when you were first introduced to his music, how old were you? I was, I believe, 14 years old. Uh, I know exactly what the occasion was. I was very interested in living composers and recent music. And I was in high school at Indian Spring School, which is just south of Birmingham, Alabama. And I spent a lot of time in the public library at Birmingham. There were two recordings. One was the original John Kirkpatrick recording of the Concord Sonata, which totally baffled me. I had no idea what this piece was about. I had heard pieces by Schoenberg. I'd heard pieces by Stravinsky. I'd heard lots of pieces by Bartok. I understood these guys. They spoke to me directly. Ives did not. But he was intriguing enough for me to listen to something else, which was the first recording of Ives' songs by um, Helen Boatwright and the, uh, the aforementioned John Kirkpatrick. And that I understood immediately. I will never forget that recording. Do you think that that's uh, often the reaction of many people who are exposed to classical music in some way? Uh, when they first hear Charles Ives, his style, does it, is it striking to them? Yes, indeed, especially since I understood uh, Schoenberg and Stravinsky <laughs> immediately. There, it, takes a, it takes a while to get into Ives. And as far as the Concord Sonata is concerned, it took me a long time to get into that. Now I think it's a, one of the greatest things anybody ever wrote. 
But um, I got into the songs much earlier. So tell us more. So I have to say, I, ha- I hope I get a pass because I'm not from Connecticut. I had no idea Charles Ives was born and raised in Danbury. Tell yeah. us about him. Well, he's a fantastic guy. He, he was born in Danbury in uh, 1874. And his father was a remarkable musician. He was uh, a bandmaster in the Civil War when he was a teenage boy. And he was he led a band that General Grant, later President Grant, said was the best army band that we had. Uh, by all accounts, he was a remarkable bandmaster during the war, and he came back home to Danbury and decided that Danbury needed more music. And he did a lot of things. He organized a band. He was a, a cornet player. He played for all kinds of uh, public functions. He went to New York frequently to concerts. Uh, as uh, Charlie got old enough, he took him with him. Uh, to hear the New York Philharmonic, uh, lots of things. He was a very, very active force. He was one of the leading people in uh, Danbury, and he even tried to make uh, a career as a professional musician. He started teaching Charlie very early uh, on. He had him uh, do lots of experiments. He had him play the piano in one key and sing in another key. That was, And he also made uh, Charlie's brother Moss do the same thing. Uh, he liked to uh, to experiment with pitches. He built a, a, some sort of a, a thing that would that would play uh, quarter tones. He tried to imitate the sounds of um, of, of um, bells through a thunderstorm on the piano, and he realized he couldn't do it. That's how he got interested in microtonality. He made Charlie listen to the sound of his cornet over a pond, which is uh, we know what pond it was. It was a pond in the cemetery uh uh in Danbury uh, where he and his son are buried and all the other Iveses too um it was a it was a very interesting childhood filled with lots of music uh Charlie took piano lessons and drum lessons uh as a boy but he, his father realized that he needed more expert attention so he he eventually uh, had him studying um organ with no less than um than um Dudley Buck who was the most famous concert organist in the United States at the time. Buck had uh, lived in Hartford and also in New York City, so I'm not sure where um, uh, where Charlie went for his lessons, but I suspect it was Hartford. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he was a virtuoso organist by the time he was in his teens, and he became the, er, the youngest employed church musician in the state of Connecticut at the age of 14. So uh, George Ives, the father uh, known as an experimenter, so that would then uh, mm-hmm. be something that shaped how Charles Ives uh, experimented with music. So he became almost an – was he an organ prodigy, would you say? He was an organ prodigy, and he became a great virtuoso. He could play just about anything on the organ. And, of course, there's this famous piece of his that he wrote when, uh, sometime in his teens and premiered when he was 17 years old, which is the Variations on America. Well, that's no trivial piece. Um, well, I, I, I pointed to our producer because you're talking about variations on America. Yes. Um, this is actually a favorite of uh, producer Lydia Brown's, and you'd mentioned he composed this as a teenager. Let's listen to a bit of it. This is a performance by organist E. Power Biggs.
again, that's uh, Variations on America for Organ. Uh, Neely Bruce is with me, uh, Wesleyan music professor, uh, also uh, quite the uh, music scholar, an Ives fan. What strikes you when you hear Variations on America? Well, this is a wonderful introduction to Ives because everybody knows the tune, and everybody can tell that this is not exactly the tune. (laughs) You know, here he is as a teenage boy, fooling around with this and, you know, changing the rhythm and changing the chords and throwing in some really oddball chords every now and then, plus uh, breaking up the tempo and doing all kinds of things with this tune. Now, what we're hearing now in the background is the actual tune itself. What we heard before is the introduction. But anyway, he turns it into a tango. He turns it into all kinds, well, not really a tango, so bolero rhythm. Um, there's all kinds of strange things. There's a polytonal variation, one hand in one key, one in another. Uh, big, flat, fancy pedal parts. It's a, it's a microcosm of a lot of things that he would do later on in so his career. I'm hearing that when I was a kid learning My Country Tis of Thee, mm-hmm. this is what I'm hearing as I'm listening to sure. variations on America. Do you find it humorous? I find it extremely <laughs> humorous. And, of course, it's part of Charlie's uh, boyhood com- growing up in Danbury. Mm-hmm. Everybody would know this tune. Everybody would know the Star Spangled Banner and lots of other patriotic songs. Everybody would know certain hymn tunes. Everybody would know certain folk songs. Everybody would dance to the same fiddle tunes uh, that would be played by the country fiddler and so on. There's uh, a very lively popular culture in America in, in, um, in music of all different sorts. And Charlie is right in the middle of it from the get-go. You mentioned uh, George Ives playing a huge role in shaping uh, Charles Ives uh, as a composer, as a musician. What was the relationship like? Because when we think about uh, growing up, uh, you want a time uh, to play outside, to be a kid. But he was uh, learning and very strict with his music, Charles. So what was the relationship between father and son? Well, the father and son relationship, well, father and son's relationships are always complicated. (laughs) Everybody who's a son or a father knows this. Uh, and uh, I'm on both sides of this <laughs> this dilemma, so I can speak from experience. But, but um, you know, what happened, of course, was Charlie basically adored his father, uh, and his father was a wonderful. He 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 wrote a, he wrote a song called "The Greatest Man," which is not his own text, and it's about somebody else's father. But clearly, he considered his father the greatest man that he knew. His father uh, died, you know, at a certain point it becomes inevitable that you have tensions with your father. And this started to happen, and unfortunately it it happened uh, right when Charles was ready to go into college and when he was a freshman in college, and that's when his father died. Mm-hmm. And he was, he was uh, disconsolate. It was, uh, he described the day many times as, as the, the bleakest day of his life. Uh, he had uh, he had to turn to the next available father figure, which there was one waiting in the wings, which was his his professor at Yale, um, Horatio Parker, who at the time was the most famous composer in America, easily, and the perfect person to to balance Ives's father in the terms of of his education. But of course, uh, this was not it was not Charlie's ad- agenda to say. You know, I owe everything that I am, you know, to Horatio Parker. So he said uh, unequivocally, I owe everything I am to my father. My father was a greater man than Parker. Parker had all these skills. My father had heart. Mm -hmm. You can imagine the kind of thing. But he got actually as good an education as anyone could get in music anywhere in the world from Horatio Parker. So Horatio Parker, uh, known as a more conservative composer. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not really fair uh, to just label him a conservative composer because he's much better than that would imply. And also, 
practically everybody is a conservative composer compared to Charles Ives. But uh, Parker, <laughs> Parker ta- taught him, uh, th- you know, he taught him lots of fundamental things, but most, I think most importantly, he taught him orchestration. And he taught him orchestration very well. I checked out Ives' uh, undergraduate um, record, and I found that he took, Parker had a two-semester course in orchestration at Yale, uh, and Ives took it twice. He took it as a junior and again as a senior. Mm. And so at his time at Yale, uh, learning under uh, Horatio Parker, uh, what was he composing at the time? Well, the most important thing he composed, of course, was his first symphony, which was his senior project. It's a mind-boggling senior project. I mean, it's, it's a symphony that can easily be prepared, uh, it's, it can easily be compared to the symphonies of Dvorak and other late 19th century symphonies. He had heard the Brahms symphonies, which he adored. He had heard the Tchaikovsky symphonies. He heard the New York premiere of the um, of the uh, Tchaikovsky Sixth Symphony, if I'm not mistaken. But Dvorak, I think, really uh, made a stamp on this on this piece. It's really marvelous, and um, the more you listen to it, the more it sounds like Dvorak. But of course, it's distinctively Ivesian. It doesn't quote any American songs. There's no there are no hymn tunes. Uh, there are no um, there are no patriotic songs. Nothing like that. He made up for it in the second symphony, which uh, he never showed to Parker. Parker would have disapproved, I'm sure, enormously. But it has, that has Yale songs in it and so on. Mm. So he graduated from Yale. Uh, so what happened? He, his uh, career didn't just follow music. No, his career definitely did not follow music. He, he uh, was such a good organist, he easily got a church job. He had a good church job in, um, in New Jersey, and then he became uh, organist and choir director at Central Presbyterian Church in New York City. In the meantime, he had started work in the insurance business, as many musicians today have a day job. That was his day job. In Ives' case, his day job was to take over his life because early in the 20th century, I think it's 1906 or thereabouts, he um, he, he, he just quit the church uh, music business, and he never had any a- aspirations to be an academic musician like Parker. So he just... Um, he just became full-time insurance, and, and that the rest is history because he wasn't just any old insurance man. He had a partner named Julian Myrick, and he uh, his their agency, Ives and Myrick, was an enormous success. At one time, it was the fourth largest insurance agency in the world. It was the largest um, agency in New York City at one time, and Ives uh, became a multimillionaire. Uh, some people think that he sold insurance. Ives never sold an insurance policy in his life. Uh, he was the brains behind the business, and he trained insurance salesmen. He trained them very, very well. He trained them so well that the handbook that he used for training um, uh, insurance uh, people became a standard text in the industry for decades after he wrote it. Um, he did all kinds of innovating th- innovative things. He was the first... Um, um, he was the first person uh, to uh, – well, he invented the concept concept of estate planning, for example, which mm-hmm. we take for, for granted. But that's because Charles Ives decided that you, people should plan ahead and they should plan their estates and so on, and that he was the first to do that. You know, on one hand, when we hear that um, he went into insurance and became very successful at it, you would think that he would have not had time uh, to compose. Uh, but I'm curious how that um, – helped or complemented the work that he was doing on the side with his music. Well, uh, he always said that, that 
you know, music made him a better insurance man, and 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 insurance and business in general made him a better musician. Uh, it, it worked for him, and I'm not complaining. Um, but it pay, he paid a terrible price for it because he basically took no vacations. Uh, he would he would come home and just compose, and 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 then he would get up in the morning and go back to the office, and then he would come home and compose and. Sometimes he was sketching pieces of music at his office and one thing and another, and he would – anyway, he basically worked himself uh, into a frenzy uh, and had all kinds of health problems as a result. Mm-hmm. Um, he may have had heart attacks early on. Um, he certainly uh, had uh, other complications with his health. In the late 19-teens, he was diagnosed with diabetes, although this was kind of a, a secret at the time. Um, but anyway, he had heart issues. He had he was a diabetic, and this is before uh, the synthesis of insulin. Mm-hmm. So his life could have been a lot shorter. Shorter, but during his lifetime, people invented made insulin, so that prolonged his life. I'm sure by decades. But the last, um, well, let's say thirty years of his life, he was really an invalid. Mm. Uh, I wanted to learn more about the time that he spent in New York City. Uh, Neely mm-hmm. Bruce is my guest, who's the John Spencer Camp Professor of Music at Wesleyan University. We're learning about Charles Ives today, an American composer uh, born and raised in Danbury, Connecticut, uh, living and working in New York City. How did that influence his music? This is before jazz? Uh, well, it is. It, uh, well, Charlie was famous when he was an undergraduate for playing ragtime. He played uh, uh, Yale shows. He played at at local uh, uh, pubs. He he played, um, you know, for parties. He was very, very popular. uh, And he continued to be interested in popular music. He heard a lot of popular music in New York City, as people do. But he also heard the sounds of the city. Uh, There's a piece of his um, called Central Park in the Dark, which is about the kind of sounds that you would hear. He uh, he was a bachelor at the time, and he walked, uh, he would walk home, to the place uh, that he and his roommates, who were also from Yale, called Poverty Flat. And he would walk uh, through or on, uh, alongside Central Park, and he would listen to various vendors. He would listen to the sounds of distant music. He would listen to the sounds of, of people speaking or just transportation sounds. And he has an incredible piece, Central Park in the Dark, that evokes all the sounds in, of the city. He has another uh, a piece which is tied to uh, the sinking of the Lusitania, where mm-hmm. He was waiting for uh, uh, the subway, and um, people began learned of this and began to sing uh, in the sweet by and by, uh, it, it just spontaneously. So uh, the sounds of the city um, were very much a part of his life. Walking through the city was very much a part of his life. He would also go to uh, various theatrical places, and he would um, he would uh, pay the theater musicians to read through pieces of his. A lot. Of, this was that time he was getting very, very few performances, almost none, until he had basically stopped composing. He didn't get very many performances, but he would go. He would pay people to read through things so he could check how they sounded and make small revisions and so on. So he's very much a part of the city life, and and. Um, it shows up in the music in many ways. Mm. I wanted to play another uh, composition for our listeners. This is actually titled The New River. Can you uh, talk about this and sure. how he was able to convey uh, a lot in such a short period of time? Well, this is an amazing piece about the way civilization infringes on nature. It's an ecological protest piece, if you like. Uh, this is a, a performance by David Barron and myself. Uh, we and In 2009, I did a big performance at Wesleyan of all of the Ives songs, 
It was in a weekend. We had six performances, uh, 202 pieces of music. It was quite an event. David was the baritone who sang all those songs. Gary Harger sang all the tenor songs. Elizabeth Saunders sang all the mezzo-soprano songs. And Johanna Arnold sang all of the um, the soprano songs. And I did all the accompaniments with assistance of other instruments as needed, violin and so on. Uh, I'm the only pianist, by the way, to have played all this this music. And in the Ives Vocal Marathon, we did world premieres unpub- of unpublished pieces. But anyway, David and I went in the recording studio afterwards, and we did The New River, among many other songs. New River is basically a ragtime piece about how the beautiful river is being destroyed by technology and the advances of, quote, civilization, unquote. Mm. So let's hear it. This is New River uh, from your recording with baritone David Barron. That's the new river. We're learning more about the composer, Charles Ives, a Danbury, Connecticut native. My guest today, Neely Bruce, who's in studio with me, the John Spencer Camp Professor of Music at Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut. Also, Neely, composer, conductor, pianist, scholar of American music. Um, We're going to talk more about Ives coming up right after the break. We're going to learn more about Danbury and what the city's doing uh, to remember uh, the legacy of Charles Ives. It is not the voice of rolling waters. You're listening to a rebroadcast of Where We Live. Today's episode was originally recorded on August 22, 2019. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're learning more about the life and legacy of American composer Charles Ives. He was born in Danbury, Connecticut. Uh, in studio with me, it's my pleasure today to speak to Neely Bruce, who's a John Spencer Camp professor of music at Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut. Also an Ivesian, is that correct? Abs- absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you've been telling us about um, the early uh, years of Charles Ives, and you'd mentioned earlier that um, as he aged, he became an invalid because of health issues. And so I'm wondering, uh, before we get to that, um, there was a woman in his life. How did Harmony help him during this time? Well, Harmony Twitchell Ives uh, was the daughter of Joseph Twitchell. Harmony uh, grew up in in Connecticut as well. And Twitchell is the Reverend Joseph Twitchell of Asylum Hill Congregational Church, Mark Twain's best friend. Uh, I'm sure we'll have more to say about the Twitchell family (laughs) later on. But Harmony was was the sister of Dave Twitchell, who was a classmate of of Charlie's at Yale. And he met her as an undergraduate, but they didn't have any sort of courtship. Uh, They were more or less friends. But anyway, somewhere uh, early in the in the um, in the um, twenty. In the, 19, in the 20th century, they became seriously interested in each other, and they were married, I believe, in, in uh, 1807. Uh, the, um, their honeymoon— 1908? Took, I think 1908. I I'm off by a year. <laughs> Sorry. Engagement in, in, in 07, wedding in, in uh, 08. And they, um, they, uh, they vacationed in the Adirondacks, and uh, they had just had a wonderful marriage. But Ives 
uh, Harmony was a nurse by profession, and I, uh, you know, was looking ahead. He had a little bit of self-interest, I think, uh, in marrying a nurse, and she was, of course, completely dedicated to helping people. She also thought that Ives was the greatest composer uh, alive, and you know, he was more than just her husband to her. He, he was a great genius, and she felt it important to keep him as comfortable and as as healthy as possible. He had been. Uh, he had been off and on not so well his entire life, but after the collapse of his health in the late teens, uh, 19, 20, 21, around in there, he really needed her help pretty much full time. He was able to continue at the office for a while, um, but he stopped writing music in the 20s. He's, he, he retired from business uh, with very good investments and lots and lots and lots of money. And he spent his life uh, editing. After that, uh, finishing up a few pieces and editing his works, uh, and being a major philanthropist, actually. Mm. Uh, before the twenties, before he retired because of his health, uh, that time after his marriage for several years, he was writing a lot, composing a lot. One yes. of those, uh, I guess, one of his most famous works, "The Unanswered Question." I just wanted to play a little bit of this sure. before we talk about it. This is the uh, unanswered question again. Just an excerpt by the New York Philharmonic Orchestra. Again, that's uh, the part of the excerpt of the unanswered question uh, composed by Charles Ives. You know, the first time I heard this, uh, Neely Bruce, I wasn't quite sure what to uh, think. It sure. reminded me of something from like a science fiction movie. What was what's going on here? <laughs> well, that's a very interesting uh, uh, comparison. Uh-huh. It is kind of a, a science fiction movie in a way. The um, the strings uh, somewhere Ives described them as the eternal verities. They're just sort of there. It's like the sounds of nature. They're beautiful, they're comforting, and so on. but then some very disturbing things come in. Not disturbing as in, I'm feared for my life, but <laughs> disturbing as in what's going on, exactly mm-hmm. the kind of reaction that you had. There is this, this uh, question in the trumpet, mm-hmm. and then there are the, the wind answers. The, unfortunately, with the recording, you can't get the spatial separation. Mm-hmm. The strings are in one place, the winds are in another, and the solo trumpet is in a third place. Uh, and when you hear that, suddenly it's, it's as if you're out in the world and you hear something from one direction, something from another direction that is quite different, and then something from a third direction that is yet again different from what the other two pieces are doing. Um, it's a, 
it's not only disorienting in the sense of what is going on, but in, in the sense of where is it going on? Mm-hmm. And you find yourself in a performance looking around. One of the pieces that I mentioned, uh, one of the performances I mentioned in the Netherlands was in a pub- large public square. And the trumpet was in an enormous distance from everything else. But the whole crowd, just the, your, your heads turn. You could see people turning to this, you know, this trumpet, which is like 100 feet away from where everything else is. Mm. It's a wonderful effect. And this is an example of, of uh, how Charles Ives uh, experimented with uh, orchestration. Oh, yes, absolutely. The orchestration is, um, is, very, uh, is very clear. Uh, he was really good at it. Um, the strings are, sound very ample, very full. Uh, and they're they, they're very colorful. They're the high violins and things like that. The version, this particular uh, performance, um, the Bernstein performance, mm-hmm. uh, uses two flutes, uh, one oboe and one clarinet, which is a slightly more pungent sound uh, than the four flutes, which is the alternate version of it. Um, and you, you hear this; it, it's sort of it's in a different key. It, it mm-hmm. grates against what's happening. Oh, and the strings, and of course the solo trumpet is basically just way out there. A lot of people uh, say, well, that's the question itself. Mm-hmm. The question itself is the solo trumpet. Uh, and there's, there's the eternal verities of the strings, and then there's this agitated thing in the winds, um, but the question is never answered by either the agitation or the serenity. I'm curious how other musicians reacted uh, to the work of Charles Ives. Who are his contemporaries? What did they think? Well, his contemporaries um, are, are, are people, let's see, how to say this. Um, you don't hear too much about his contemporaries. Arthur Farwell, for example, is a contemporary of his who had a, a similar uh, neglected career. Uh, there were... Um, uh, Charles Wakefield Cadman was one of his contemporaries uh, who wrote From the Land of Sky Blue Waters. Well, that's completely different. That was a Pabst beer commercial mm-hmm. back in the day, uh, if I remember the brand right anyway, beer commercial. Uh, his younger contemporaries uh, began to discover him. Aaron Copeland, for example, who who was e- extremely enthusiastic about him. Nicholas Slonimsky, uh, who was a conductor-composer from Russia, Russian immigre, uh, he took up the Ives cause and started performing the pieces in the 1920s. Um, who else was a fan? Uh, in in Parker's generation, actually, one of the one of his fans uh, who never, didn't advance his career or anything was uh, uh, George Wakefield Cadman. I don't mean Cadman. Um, uh, I'm blanking. That guy who was the, the, the head of the of the, New, of the New England Conservatory at the time. His name will come to me. But anyway, he, he said to Parker, he heard one of Ives' songs when he was an undergraduate. He said, that's as good a song as you could write, Horatio. So he had his supporters from the beginning. Uh, but he had a lot of people who were detractors and thought he was crazy. Uh, he, he gave away copies of his music that people threw in the wastebasket mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, uh, very, very uh, intense um, uh, criticism. Uh, there was Elizabeth Sprague Coolidge was a friend of Harmony uh, of Harmony's, and she uh, she urged her husband Harmony her, urged her husband to listen to her advice, and she came for tea, and she uh, she and she re- said that Charles should listen to the music of Daniel Gregory Mason, uh, and if you Mason was not a bad composer, he's the same family as Mason and Hamlin pianos and Lowell Mason who wrote Nearer My God to Thee, but he was. Extremely conservative. He was a professor uh, at Columbia, and he—it's it, kind of—it was really—it depressed Ives to be compared to say that he should listen to 
to uh, Mason mm-hmm. for instruction on how to write music. He did not take this advice, by the way. This is where we live. We're learning about American composer Charles Ives, who was born and raised in Danbury, Connecticut. My in-studio guest, uh, Neely Bruce, the John Spencer Camp Professor of Music at Wesleyan University in Middletown. And we wanted to learn more about the Ives' uh, influence in Danbury. Again, his childhood home, now part of the Danbury Museum and Historical Society. Uh, joining us now by phone is Bridget Gerton, who's the executive director of the Danbury Museum and Historical Society, also city historian there. Uh, Bridget, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. It's always a pleasure to talk Ives. So tell us about his birthplace. Where is it exactly? So Danbury is uh, on the border with New York State. We're in the southern part of of the state, just uh, the top part of Fairfield County. And when Ives was growing up, Danbury was uh, full of sights and sounds and smells related to our hatting industry. And he took those sights and sounds and smells and the immigrant culture and our love of baseball locally and, and nationally, and he just turned all of that into amazing music. So uh, the Ives, um, the Ives Danbury, is the foundation of the Danbury that we have today. And although Danbury is easily um, much more populous by by several tens of thousands than it was during uh, the time that Charlie was growing up in town. Uh, you can still find the remnants of the Ives past and the foundation he laid for a very musical community. Uh, so I understand the house that he was born in was moved several times. Where is that located now, and, and who's responsible for rehabilitating it? <laughs> so it's a community effort, but the Ives house has been moved uh, three times, and now it currently lives at 5 Mountainville Avenue in Danbury. It is on uh, city-owned property, and the building is part of the collection of the Danbury Museum, which we are, we are thrilled about. It's, it's a, you know, such a significant piece. And we renovated and restored pieces of the Ives house in the early 90s, um, but it was uh, looking a little worse for wear, and uh, we knew we needed to do uh, sort of a rehabilitation of the exhibit itself to, to tell Ives' narrative story in a new context. And so five years ago, the museum embarked on a journey with the state and the city and uh, local donors to re- uh, rehabilitate the exterior of the house. And now, thanks to very generous local donor, uh, Savings Bank of Danbury, we are going to be able to finish our rehabilitation project and open the house to visitors again in the spring of 2020. Well, that's wonderful news. I had said earlier, (laughs) I said earlier, Bridget, that I didn't realize Charles Ives was from Danbury. So now I need to check out that uh, that house that's being rehabilitated. Uh, Thank you so much, uh, Bridget Gerton, for joining us. And I would like to take a field trip. Maybe the Where We Live team will come down uh, once the house opens. Uh, I mentioned uh, Neely Bruce is my in-studio guest. Uh, I wanted to play uh, the third movement of Charles Ives's uh, Three Places in New England because I wanted to hear more about how he incorporated his upbringing, uh, the sounds that he heard into uh, his compositions. Well, this is such an amazing piece. First, I'd, I'd like to congratulate Bridget and the, the people of Danbury for restoring the house. Thank you. I was, I, was, I was in the house very briefly at one time, and I was able to walk around it in its, in its current location not too long ago with a group of Wesleyan students. But it's a, it's a very, very important, very interesting, wonderful house, so kudos all around. Um, the Housatonic at Stockbridge was first a song, and uh, it was um, it was then turned. The song uh, is starts off contented river. Uh, it's a, it's a description of the the origins of the Housatonic, which is indeed um, a, 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 just a mere brook 
in in uh, Stockbridge, Massachusetts. You can go to the place where Charlie and Harmony mm-hmm. actually walked along the river on their honeymoon. It's a beautiful, idyllic sp- uh, spot, very near, um, you know, downtown Sturbridge, such as there's a downtown <laughs> Sturbridge. Uh, and um, it's just a trickle. And the, the, the piece describes the, the, the gaining of momentum of the river. And eventually, of course, it ends up uh, in uh, Long Island Sound uh, at um, Sheldon, Connecticut, where, where the um, – I don't mean – do I mean Sheldon? I, what, where is it? Where is – ah, <laughs> wherever the Houstonic empties into the, uh, into the, um, the river, anyway, near, near Bridgeport. And uh, it has a GE plant now, so so this is this is before the GE plant, obviously, uh, and there um, and the, the it's the new river that we heard earlier, but this is the original beautiful uh, idyllic river that um, flows to the sea and ga- gathers momentum. There's a tremendous climax uh, near the end, very near the end of the piece, and then all the loud instruments drop out, and only the soft strings just sort of hover in the background. Uh, and it's it's a totally magical mm-hmm. effect, uh, very very original orchestration, uh, and uh, so we hear the, the the contented river at the beginning. We hear it gain strength. We hear the the emptying into the sea, and then we uh, it's all it's all over. Gorgeous piece. Neely Bruce is my in studio guest here on Where We Live. We're going to hear again the third movement of Charles Ives' Three Places in New England, titled the Housatonic at Stockbridge. I'm Lydia Brown. Thanks for listening to Where We Live. Today's rebroadcast was originally recorded on August 22, 2019. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Are you a fan of American composer Charles Ives? He was born and raised in Danbury, Connecticut. You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Milton's actually calling in from Niantic. Milton, go ahead. Oh, hi. Uh yeah, I find it amazingly ironic that while I was on the phone with your producer, you started talking about uh, the uh, Housatonic at West Stockbridge, which was basically what I had, what I was calling about. Uh, to me, that's always been the most special piece of American music. Mm. I grew up in that part of the world, and uh, that uh, sonic effect at the end with the uh, the sort of buzz that goes on in the orchestra to me is the sonic evocation of a summer day on that river which is not really a, a flowing river it's all rocky and and uh, down in a ravine and you have the mayflies and the dust and the glare and the, the music is just incredibly special to me it, it gives me this sort of full body effect that only the Strauss four last songs can achieve. <laughs> well, Milton, thank you. It was a, a lovely uh, description of the third movement. Uh, thank you for for giving us a call. Uh, what do you think, uh, Neely Bruce? Uh, Milton's description. I, I, I'm with you, Milton, all the way. It, it's a, it's a gorgeous piece. I I'm, I appreciate the reference to the insects. 
<laughs> right. I wanted to bring in another composer who's uh, been influenced by Charles Ives. Uh, Robert Carl's joining in, chair of the composition program and professor of composition and theory at the University of Hartford's Hart School. Robert, are you there? I am. Thanks so much for joining us today. What did Charles Ives mean to you? Well, in some ways, Ives, I think, was uh, what made me a composer because uh, I did come uh, to college at Yale. I was not really, at that point, a musician, though I had a great interest in music, and I remained a history major the whole time I was there, but uh, I happened to be there at the time of the Charles Ives Centennial, and Yale went all out and played lots and lots of his music live that I heard, and I think that somehow kick-started me. It gave a um, permission, and I started, I started writing. And I'm very glad that it was Ives, because he is, in a way, an ultimate permission-giver. Mm. What is it about his approach that appealed to you, or the music that you're hearing at times? Well, you know, I was, um, I was thinking about this, actually, in the conversation yesterday with your producer. I think I said, I think the thing about Ives is that you have this amazing connection of imagination and invention. Ives you know, had an incredibly fertile imagination. And at the same time, he had an ability to come up with ways of conveying it that were actually quite personal, rigorous, and uh, musical. And he really, he experimented, but he experimented like a scientist to get things right the way he wanted them. And so those combinations, I think, make his music especially important and something that we can teach, um, not just as a one-off. Mm. I understand that you're, you have an opera that's inspired by Charles Ives' life. Tell us about it. Okay, and I will emphasize that this whole show is about Charles and not about me, <laughs> but there is uh, a project that is coming to fruition um, that will be performed next summer up at a uh, music, uh, vocal music institute that does an opera program and a, a series in the summer called the Siegel Music Colony. It is, the opera is called Harmony, and it is a evocation of the time of Charles's and Harmony's engagement, but the key sort of dramatic point is that historically there was a meeting between Charles Ives and Mark Twain. It actually happened in Hartford in the uh, Twain House. Harmony was the goddaughter of the Reverend Joseph Twitchell, who was uh, the leading preacher of Hartford. But he was also, Twitchell was also the best friend of Mark Twain. And so Twain was enlisted to examine Ives to see if he was suitable uh, as a prospective husband. Now, in, historically, nothing much happened as far as we know, but I always thought that that was a sort of great image of those two men encountering one another. And then uh, I was able to enlist a wonderful American novelist named Russell Banks uh, to uh, write the libretto, which is quite gorgeous. And uh, he is also, uh, by coincidence, married to Charles Ives' uh, great niece, uh, Jane Twitchell. <laughs> so all you see, see the, the, the plot thickens as we go along. And, and I, I would like to emphasize, Neely has been very, very accurate. And hello, Neely. Hi there, Robert. How are you? <laughs> Uh, has, um, he has been very accurate with all of the historical details. Uh, needless to say, for what is a work of fiction, we take a lot of liberties in terms of the timeline and what happens when and the way that it all happens. It's sort of like a one-night magic flute uh, with an almost derailed marriage. It's a, it's a rom-com, etc., like that. <laughs> but I do think there is a lot uh, – there, there, there's still, I believe – 
a lot of truth in it. As a matter of fact, now that I've finished writing it, I have to keep reminding myself that these things did not really happen. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, this piece is a love letter to Charles Ives and Harmony, his wife? It is. As a matter of fact, I had a I had a professional commitment in the Hudson River Valley about two weekends ago, and on my way there, I stopped by the cemetery in Danbury um, to go to the grave and to ask blessing and forgiveness. You know, and it seemed to work, by the way. <laughs> You know, anyway. Robert, you and Neely, uh, obviously from uh, music professors. I'm curious about when we think about Charles Ives' legacy today. Uh, what do your What's your students' reactions, and and what do they say when they hear his music and play it? Yeah, Neely, is it okay if I go ahead first? Sure, you, it's uh, your I'll, turn. <laughs> okay, well, it's very, um, very quickly. Uh, most of them. I teach a seminar on Ives. Most of the students in it are uh, graduate students, though not exclusively. Most of them have encountered his music, but they don't know it comprehensively. I do think that what they end up with, they come out of it very, very charged. I mean, I always have them as a final project write a piece that in some way shows an Ivesian influence that they then have to tell me what it is. Um, And... uh, uh, so first of all, a lot of fertile music has come out that now and then they didn't imagine they had. And I think that, again, sort of like me, Ives is the permission giver. Um, things that you might not have imagined you, you were allowed to do as a composer, as an artist, are things that you almost have to do if you take Ives uh, as an inspiration. Um, and, and by the way, uh, he's, still, he, he's still contemporary in terms of all the techniques, which are a catalog of uh, possibilities, and also, by the way, because of the diversity. Um, This music is, from its time, just about as eclectic and diverse as it possibly could have been. Mm. And so it's it's a model for what composers uh, today of concert music can do with the exponentially wider range of resources that we have. That's Robert Carl from the Hart School and Neely Bruce in studio with me. Uh, when we think about Ives' legacy, how do your students react to him? Just a couple minutes left. Well, my students, um, for the most part, are very enthusiastic, uh, although I must say not all of them. I, I had a, a very surprising event happen in the last time I taught my seminar on Ives. Uh, I played the Second Symphony, which anybody is welcome to listen to. It's it's a big free-for-all um, uh, uh, with all kinds of quotations and razzle-dazzle marches and, and one thing. It's very exciting and wonderful piece. Uh, and one student just didn't like it. And he, he said, this, is, this piece is all about what is the worst part of America. Uh, all this razzle-dazzle, all this rah-rah America stuff. He says, I just don't buy it. Uh, and that was, you know, he's a minority position perhaps, but, you know, there's that idea too that mm-hmm. the, the you know, it's a little bit too much, um, you know, American culture in your face. Uh, to people in my generation, it's not that's not the case at all. I mean, we everybody I knew in graduate school was just crazy about him. There's an older generation of composers, um, you know, who were still alive when I was in school. Henry Cowell, um, you know, Lou Harrison, um, people like this. Who, who Leonard Bernstein himself, who conducted, you know, the the second symphony. Harrison conducted the third symphony for the first time. I mean, uh, 
to me, he's he's a beacon for for composers of all generations and for the future. Uh, before we run out of time, can we talk a little bit about the Ives Project? Sure, the Ives Project is uh, the work of the New Camerata Opera, which is a small opera company up and coming in New York City, and they asked me to record a number of songs with members of the company, and they've started producing these videos. Uh, there will eventually be more of them, but there's six now out on YouTube. You can go to YouTube. If you just search uh, New Camerata Opera uh, and uh, the Ives Project, you will come up with the playlist of the six videos they have. You can hear me play this music, and you can hear members of the New Camerata Opera sing some really, really fine songs. Well, it's been a pleasure uh, to learn more about Charles Ives. I want to thank Robert Carl for calling in, chair of the Composition Program and professor of Composition and Theory at the University of Hartford's Hart School. Uh, can't wait to hear more about the opera project. I think slated to be ready for uh, audiences uh, next July, Robert? That, that's right. You'll be on the mailing list. <laughs> Wonderful. Also, Neely Bruce, a pleasure uh, to meet with you and speak with you today. Same here, Lucy. Thanks so much. At Wesleyan uh, University. Uh, I'm Lucy Nalpathangel. Today's show produced by uh, Lydia Brown. And uh, we'll be hearing uh, more of uh, Charles Ives' compositions coming out of today's show.